0: Well, it is a joy to be with you all this morning. And uh, as Bruce mentioned, we're going to be looking at the book of Second Peter this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Second Peter. That's why we'll be spending our time this morning. You may not know it, but uh, our morning and evening services are connected through a, a cohesive theme. And so we have a morning passage. We're going through Second Timothy, and in our evening service, we have a complimentary passage that carries through the same theme of our morning service. And so, although it feels like we're just jumping into Second Peter uh, this morning, it actually is connected in with the theme from Second Timothy that Pastor Lee would have been preaching on this morning. And that theme is remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel. And so tonight we'll continue that theme as Pastor Lee preaches from Second Timothy. But as we parachute kind of into Second Peter this morning, it's important for us at the very beginning to understand what is the theme of Second Peter altogether. Second Peter is this little kind of potent book, and it is uniquely postured to kind of pester us, and it kind of gets underneath of our skin spiritually. It's a really unique book if you've never read it through from beginning to end. I encourage you to do that because there's some things in 2 Peter that are just very, very interesting. And they kind of get right under our skin the only way that God can through the Holy Spirit. And so in this little potent book, Peter is providing the antidote to some very dangerous spiritual vulnerabilities that these readers were facing. The audience that Peter is addressing is in danger They are in danger of being passively carried away by the moral and theological errors of lawless men. And as a result, they are in danger of stalling out spiritually, becoming spiritually stagnant, spiritually dry. And so, the reason that this message of the book is as potent for them as it is for us today is because we too face those same spiritual vulnerabilities. You may not feel it, you may not be aware of it, you may not even want to admit it this morning, but each and every single one of us sitting here this morning and perhaps listening on the radio are in danger. We're in danger of being passively carried away by the heirs of lawless men that exist in our world today, and as a result then are in danger of stalling out spiritually hitting periods of dryness. Now, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know that times of spiritual dryness come. And I'm not necessarily referring to that kind of dryness. What I'm talking about is a a kind of spiritual stagnation that is a result of accepting moral and theological errors in our world today. And as a result, then, we lose our appetite for spiritual things. We lose our appetite for Christ. And so we, like the people that Peter is riding to, are being vulnerable to being influenced by the heirs of the people that we live in and live next to, our neighbors, the world that we live in, which can lead to this spiritual stagnation. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose our firm footing and stability in the gospel. If you looked at the end of uh, 2 Peter in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, you see there clearly that what Peter's aim is in this book. He's, He's wanting to guard them against these theological errors, and he's wanting to help them to grow in grace. And so he's guarding them, correcting the theological errors that they're facing, and encouraging them to grow in grace. And so it seems that throughout this whole book, Peter's aim is to remind them of the gospel in order that they remain stable in it. That'd be a great summary theme for the whole book of 2nd Peter. Reminded of the gospel so that one remains stable in the gospel. And so what we see throughout this whole book is that Peter wants to remind them of the gospel so that they remain stable in it. That is his pastoral concern for them, to guard them and to help them grow in grace. That's important for us today too. If you see the banners over here on my right and on my left, we're a, we're a church that wants to proclaim the gospel. It's embedded in our vision statement. We want to be a group of people who are being so impacted by the gospel that we are, we are pushing forward and proclaiming it. But if we're not careful, if we're not very careful, we could lose our firm footing in it. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles there still open, please leave them open to Second Peter chapter one. I'm going to read for us verses three to 11. Second Peter, chapter one, verses three to 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. "...so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A great way to begin this little potent letter. And these 11 verses, I think, can be broken down into basically three main sections. The first one is in verses 3 and 4. 3 and 4 are about what God does. The second section is in verses 5 to 9, what we do. And then in verses 9 to 11, what it proves. And so that'll serve as our guide through our time this morning. What God does, what we do, and what it proves. And so let's begin looking at verses 3 and 4. According to verses 3 and 4, God, through Christ, has granted two massive things to those he has called. We see the first one there in verse 3. There we see that the divine power of Christ has granted to us all things that belong to life and godliness. Life and godliness there should be really be taken as one kind of verbal unit together. And what they, what they are getting at is that the only source for true godliness in this world is Jesus. He is the one who possesses the power to grant to us life and godliness. There is no other source of power out there that produces the godliness that is required for salvation. Jesus alone is the one who possesses that power. It is a work of God. So when we talk about the gospel being radically God-centered, what we mean is that he is the one who has the power to grant life and godliness to those who are spiritually dead, those who are spiritually unholy and lifeless. Jesus is the one who possesses the power to give life and godliness to you and to me. Notice, too, that the power that Jesus possesses is not limited. But rather, it provides all things that belong to a life that is pleasing to God. The power that Jesus possesses to give us these things is not halfway. He doesn't provide just a, a portion of what is required for salvation. His power produces all of it. Without reservation. Without limit. Fully accessible to those whom he has called. Jesus' power is the only unlimited source of power in this world that can provide for everything that's needed for a godly life. We could say it's the Hiroshima of spiritual power. Nothing else can compare with it. The men who are in this room, and the women I suppose too, right? We love power. We love power tools. We love power running backs. We love power ties. We love power moves, powerful people. The roar of a Harley Davidson, right? Or a monster truck. Power has been one of the dominant pursuits of men for all time. Going back all the way to King Solomon, who among one of his greatest pursuits was the pursuit of power. He wanted to gain it. He wanted to get it because when someone has power, they feel significant. They feel important in the world as if they can affect change. Whether that comes through money, whether it comes through position, whatever it may be. When we have power, we feel like we are something. On the flip side, then, when we feel powerless, we feel like we're in a position of being taken advantage of and unable to affect change. Discouragement and depression can easily slip in. We are power-hungry men and women. What is most amazing about verse 3 is that the most dominant source of power in all of the world that anyone could ever possess is possessed by Jesus and he directs his power to give life and godliness to you and to me. The divine power of God who through the power of a spoken word created the universe and all that we see through the power of a word, that same power he exerts towards you and towards me. And so as people who love power moves, we could say that God has made the biggest power move towards you and towards me in granting to us life and godliness through Jesus Christ. In the gospel, God has exerted his life-giving power to us. That's what verse 3 is about. The second thing that we have been given by God through Christ, is seen in verse 4. He's granted to us precious and very great promises. That's what Peter writes there. And what we see in verse 4 is that there's two promises that he's granted to us. The first promise is the promise of sanctification. And so he says that that we may become partakers of the divine nature. Which is simply a way of saying that God promises us to transform us into the likeness of Christ. His promise and will for our lives is our sanctification. It's interesting to stop here for just a minute and realize that a lot of people, Christians, get too hung up on what is God's particular will for our lives. Now what I mean by that is we get hung up on where should we go to college Where should we go to work? Where should we live? And in these things, I wonder if we might have more freedom in those things, understanding the big W of God's will. Meaning that His will for your life and my life is our sanctification. We see that in places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, that God's will for our life is our sanctification, our growth in holiness. And so does God care about where you work, where you go to school, who you marry? Of course he does. But in in those things, perhaps there's more freedom that we often do not exercise. Understanding that what God's ultimate will is for you and for me is growth and holiness. That we would become partakers of the divine nature. And what verse 4 is telling us is that God has made a promise to us. This precious and very great promise. And that promise is that He will grow us in sanctification. That we will become partakers of the divine nature. The second promise in verse 4 is the promise of escape. You can see it right after there when he writes the phrase, partakers of the divine nature. He says, then secondly, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That second promise that God gives to us is escape from the corruption that's in this world. Most likely what Peter has in mind here is the, the lustful behaviors and promiscuous lifestyle That of the false teachers that were in that church at that time. And he's telling them, God has provided for you an escape from that corruption. It's deeply tied to sanctification. But he's saying he's provided an escape from those things. The point is here that God has promised both sanctification and deliverance, promises to you and to me. And they're not empty promises. In fact, we know that all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. He doesn't make promises like you and like I do. There's often things that I promise to my children that I can never actually fulfill. They're more like good intentions. Things I hope that we're going to do, but I'm not actually sure we can actually do those things. The promises of God are unshakable. They can be fully trusted at all times because his promises have been and will be fulfilled in Christ. The promise of sanctification, the promise from escape, from sin. And so in verses 3 and 4, they teach us what God does in the gospel. They explain to us what he's doing in it and through it. Through the gospel, we are saved from the penalty of our sin. He grants to us life. He grants to us godliness. And through the gospel we are being saved from the power of sin. Growth and sanctification. and escape from the corruption that's in the world. We're saved from the penalty of sin and we are being saved from the power of sin. And that is the gospel power that is at work in you and in me. To those that belong to him. And it is a dynamite power. It's a dynamite power that explodes in our life And changes us, producing a miracle and raising dead men and women to life. That's what God does. All of what God does then in verses 3 and 4 leads to an understanding of what we do in verses 5 to 9. Look down at verses 5 to 9 with me. At the beginning of verse 5, he writes this. For this very reason... So immediately he's connecting what God does now with what we do and what he's explaining to them, what they need to do. And so he says there that because of what God has done, because of his power, because of his promises in the gospel, therefore we are to make every effort, he says, to supplement our faith with the necessary qualities that correspond to faith in Christ. That's an interesting little verse, isn't it? We are to make every effort to supplement our faith with these qualities. You know, sometimes we get into the, to the mindset that once God has done what he does in the gospel, then we just sit back and then he does all the sanctifying work. And we don't have any effort to give to it. But that's not what Peter's saying, is it? Keeping in mind what God has done in the gospel, now Peter says... Supplement your faith with these qualities. And these qualities in verses five to seven are not just a list of moral qualities, not just a list of kind of how to live a moral life. They are, in fact, what God envisions for our spiritual growth. If you ever wonder how does God want me to grow spiritually, what are the qualities that I need to be working on in my life? These are the qualities that He desires us to grow in, in excellence. And knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These are the qualities that spring out and come out of belief in the gospel. The qualities that correspond to it. That is God's vision for your spiritual maturity. God's purpose is to make you holy. Those are the character traits To say it another way, we could say that the church is God's people saved by God's power for God's purpose. God's people saved by God's power for God's purpose. So those list of qualities that he lists here, those are God's purpose for your life. And they are the natural byproducts of faith in Jesus According then to verse 8, if you look down at verse 8 with me, these are the qualities then that keep us from stalling out spiritually. He says there in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we said, these qualities don't just magically appear in our lives. There is a, a sense of effort that we need to put into these type of things, growing in these areas. The basis for that effort is a response to what God has done. All Christian obedience, all Christian living is designed to originate from a deep understanding of all that God has accomplished through Christ for us on our behalf and so the supplementing that Peter has in mind here isn't saying now through all we see what God has done it provides a little bit of it but now i have to supplement that faith and since we're make up for what's lacking it's not a thing of lacking it's a thing of saying the power to supplement those things the power to grow in spiritual qualities the power to do that comes from the power that Jesus possesses that he gives to us we have to put forth effort But the effort that we put forth comes from Jesus himself. Otherwise, we turn into Pharisees. Thinking that somehow, through our own efforts, we can add to what God has already accomplished. Verse 3 and 4 are pretty clear. It is done. It is finished. God's purpose is to make us holy. And we then put forth effort to do so. But let's be honest for just a minute. If you look at verses 5 to 9, and I look at verses 5 to 9, and examine my life, I have to admit that I fail miserably. There are certain things in my life, and you can probably identify in your life, that you don't measure up to these kind of spiritual qualities that correspond to faith in Christ. Why do we struggle with self-control? Why do we struggle with brotherly affection and and love? We could list a whole bunch of reasons this morning why we don't grow spiritually or the challenges that we face when seeking to become more like Christ. Peter mentions one reason why. I want you to look at it at verse 9 with me. He mentions one reason, the sole reason, why we lack spiritual growth, why we don't grow. He says in verse 9 that we are nearsighted and we are blind. Those two words literally mean that we are blinking or we're winking or we're squinting. And so Peter's using it here metaphorically to describe someone who is trying to see clearly but is unable, possibly unwilling to open their eyes If you ever squinted at the sun, you know that a little bit comes in. But if you opened your eyes fully to the sun, you'd go blind. And what Peter is saying here is the reason we don't grow spiritually is because we're squinting at the gospel. We may have one eye open to it, looking at it just a little bit. And then we're trying to live holy lives on our own. We're nearsighted. We're blind. We're squinting at the gospel. And so the reason I think Peter's saying here that that we don't grow in these qualities is because we have forgotten the power of the gospel. And so on our own, we try to, to, to produce these qualities. We try to supplement our faith with our own willpower. We work, we put forth effort, but the effort that we put forth comes from the gospel. If we forget the power of the gospel... We're going to tend towards doing good works and acts of service without the power of God. And if we forget verses 3 and 4, we're going to try to do verses 5 to 7 in our own willpower. But when the change that we long for doesn't happen, when that sin that you're dealing with keeps hounding you, when issues of maybe self-control keep coming back at you, and we see no real lasting change in our lives, we're quickly going to turn to something else or somebody else for something that quote-unquote works. We may understand God's purpose to make us holy, but we think that we possess the power to produce the needed changes on our own. On the flip side, if we, if we forget the purpose of the gospel, that God wants to make you holy, as described in verses 5 to 9, and the effort that we need to put into holy living And we only focus on the power of the gospel. Just on what God has done. Then we're going to tend towards a Christian life that lacks any kind of real life obedience. And so we're going to tend to compartmentalize the gospel. Kind of put it off to the side and pull it out when we need it. But it doesn't really have any sort of infiltrating effect in our lives. We got our ticket to heaven and that's all that matters. So we have to keep in tension the power of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. The power of the gospel to make you, that he has done it all, and the purpose of the gospel to make you holy, bringing these two things together. How many of you have had a power outage in your house this summer? Any of you? Some of you possibly have. Last summer we had a lot of power outages in our homes. When there's no power in your house, everything begins to smell terrible, doesn't it? Everything does. There's no life, food spoils, everything goes rotten. Without a source of power in our homes, it doesn't function properly. No matter how much effort we put into flipping that light switch or trying to turn on whatever it may be we're trying to turn on, it just won't do what we want it to do because there's no source of power. You see, God's power and his promises are what enable and animate us to produce this godly character. He animates us to do it. We put forth effort, but the power source of effort is not in our own gut. It's not in our own willpower. The source of power to supplement our faith is found only in Jesus and keeping our eyes fixed on him. That is the liberating power of the gospel. Liberates us to live lives of obedience. It animates us to live the life that God envisions for us. So that's verses five to nine, what we do. Three to four, what God does. Verses five to nine, what we do. And now finally, verses 10 to 11, what it all proves. Let me read for us verses 10 and 11 again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the most well-known verses in Second Peter. And the command here that he gives us is to make our calling and our election sure. The word for effort in verse 5 and the word for diligent in verse 10 are similar words. And they express the idea of doing it quickly. Do it now. Don't delay. Make your calling and election sure now. And so I think by using similar words in in verse 5 and verse 10, he's connecting these two ideas, and that is that the godly character of verses 5 to 7 is a real-life proof of God's call and election in a person's life. There's proof. That's how we make our calling and election sure. The contrast that Peter's drawing here is between these false teachers whose character actually contradicts what they claim with their mouth. And those then who are increasing in the knowledge of Jesus and godly character. It's easy to give lip service to the gospel. Easy to give lip service to what God has done. But it is the production of this godly character that is the real life proof of God's call and election in our lives. We could say that the proof is in the pudding. It's right there. Do you want to be assured that God has elected you? that he's called you to himself. Examine the spiritual fruit that your faith is producing. If there's no real root in Christ, there will be no real fruit. God's power is what enables us to produce that accompanying fruit, and then he keeps us from falling away. Verse 11 is all future oriented, and it's all about what he's doing to preserve us to the very end. It's all about what he will provide for us So, because we are saved from the penalty of sin, are being saved from the power of sin, we will be saved from the presence of sin, and we can be assured of eternal life in heaven with him because of what he has done. What God has done in the past gives us hope for the present and gives us assurance for our future. This is the gospel that we celebrate this morning. This is the gospel that we remember because we need this gospel when we're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard things and hard times that come our way. Pastor Lee is going to pick up on that theme this evening in Second Timothy. But this morning as we come to the table, we remember what Jesus has done for us. In his body and in his blood being shed for us. And so as we take these elements this morning, let us remember this gospel that Peter draws us back to and let us pray that God would help us and animate us to live lives full of godly character as described here in verses 5 to 9. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that by the power of Jesus... Through what he has done we are saved from our sins. And that because of what he has done and the power that he possesses we can live lives of obedience. And so Father as we remember the gospel this morning and are drawn back to the truths these precious truths that are the bedrock of our faith I pray that none of us would just become so routine and rote with these truths that it just kind of just kind of goes right over us. But Lord, that we would be transformed by these truths deeply. That you'd cause us then to long for godly character in our lives. Would you, Father, guard us from stalling out spiritually. And would you help us to grow in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.